Hello. Thanks for listening to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This is the third episode of Easter term, the penultimate seminar of the academic year, and the 18th overall episode in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. I'm Lewis DeFreitz. I'm a PhD student at Sydney Sussex College here in uh, the University of Cambridge. And as you might be able to hear, we're recording for the first time in an actual recording studio with real microphones and everything. We're on track in our five-year plan on our way to selling out completely. So if any mattress companies or razor startups want to get in touch, you know where to find me. More importantly, I'm delighted to be joined today by Ari Kelman, who is a Chancellor's uh, Leadership Professor of History at the University of California, Davis. Ari is a historian near the 19th and 20th century United States, with expertise in a number of subfields, including but not limited to Native American history, the history of the Civil War, environmental history, historical memory, and the history of the West. His first book, A River and Its City, An Environmental History of New Orleans, was published in 2003 and won the Abbott Lowell Cummings Prize from the Vernacular Architectural Forum. His second book, A Misplaced Massacre, a history of the events and memorialisation of the 1864 Sand Creek Massacre won, among many other awards, the 2014 Bancroft Prize for Best Book in American History. And most recently, he wrote Battle Lines, an illustrated history of the American Civil War, in collaboration with the illustrator Jonathan Fettervorm, published by Hill and Wang in 2015. He has written for innumerable academic journals and other outlets, including the Times Literary Supplement, the New York Times and The Nation. And now he's talking to me for the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. Ari, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So we're going to talk a little bit about the paper that you've uh, pre-circulated for the seminar group today, a little bit about your rider research and some of your broader experience as a historian as an uh, intellectual. So the paper you've presented is titled From Manassas to Mankato, How the Civil Wars Bled into the Indian Wars. As I've mentioned, it's been pre-circulated for people who are attending the seminar, but could you tell me a little bit about it? Uh, it's about an episode during the United States Civil War during which uh, the Dakota people of Minnesota uh, engaged in a rebellion, uh, in largely targeting settlers um, and also representatives of the federal government uh, in an effort to reclaim land that historically had been theirs and over a period of approximately half a century had been taken from them. Okay. Um can you talk maybe specifically about yeah what where these instances were how they yeah absolutely unfold, yeah <laughs> uh, um, the the precipitating events began uh, outside of Saint Paul mm -hmm. uh, which was initially the territorial capital and then the state capital uh, the Dakota people had made their uh, ancestral home um, on the banks of the Minnesota River, uh, right outside of the city of St. Paul. They gradually were pushed further westward uh, until during the summer of 1862, uh, they began starving. They were starving for a variety of different reasons, one of which they identified was that their uh, their treaty annuities were being diverted from them. Money that was owed to them by the United States federal government wasn't being mm -hmm. sent their way. And instead, they believed was being used to subsidize the Civil War, the fighting of the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, as they were starving, uh, there was a, a, a particular episode in Acton, Minnesota, in which a, a group of Dakota hunters... Uh, murdered um, a, a family of settlers, and then the hunters made their way back to the 
uh, Sioux Reservation, as it was known, which was at that point in far western Minnesota. Uh, upon arriving back at the reservation, they announced that they had that they had started what they called a war yeah. uh, with the whites. Um, the violence then radiated out from Acton and engulfed most of the central and southern part of the state. Uh, eventually, somewhere between several hundred and perhaps as many as a thousand or so settlers were killed. Mm -hmm. uh, the violence had one flashpoint, uh, which is particularly notorious in, in Native history. And insofar as it's known at all in, in U.S. history more broadly, it would be notorious there as well. Mm. This was an execution uh, the day after Christmas of, of 1862. Uh, 38 Dakota people were hanged in Mankato, Minnesota. Yeah. But then the violence continued even after that for approximately an additional 18 months, mm. whereupon the Dakota people were largely pushed out where they were deported from Minnesota. Right. OK. And one of the things that comes across from reading the paper is all these different uh, theaters of conflict and the way they're talk talked about in Minnesota by white settlers as well by as by Native Americans is that urban centers and urban development played a really big role in this, right? So, yeah, I mean, I, the, what I'm arguing in the paper, and it's a it's a piece that I've carved out of what's going to be a much larger chapter, is is that one of the reasons that this conflict uh, emerged when it did was a process of urbanization that was happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, in Minnesota, um, that the growth of St. Paul particularly, and then outlying settlements that were connected to St. Paul uh, through trade networks, um, that these became nodes of settlement and empire that were pushing Native peoples off of their land. Um, yeah. And so what I'm trying to do is connect that, uh, those urban patterns of, uh, of settlement uh, with what had been historically uh, an indigenous uh, urban settlement outside of, of Minnesota that's uh, called Bedote okay. uh, by Dakota people. Sure. And, I mean, as well as that, that broader development, one of the things you talk about is in, once, in cities, once they existed, they kind of engender a social structure whereby hearsay, for instance, and people finding out about, say, individual instances of violence can escalate into something much larger. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. Uh, these concentrations of people, the urban nodes, uh, and particularly the city of St. Paul, become uh, sort of hothouses for rumors and for racial anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so once people begin talking about racial violence outside of the urban area, people within the city begin exchanging news much more quickly than they might otherwise because they live in close proximity to one another, because news of these events get printed in, in the papers. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and as the word spreads of this violence, people become increasingly anxious and, and they use the, the power of this kind of a, of a concentrated settlement uh, to leverage a response from the federal government. Um, the federal government engages in, in a variety of different sorts of reprisals against the Dakotas. Okay. And as well as those reprisals, it also seems to, to me that those kind of networks of communication and I guess recourse to the federal government also um, enhances that connection that you talk about between what was happening in the Indian Wars and the Civil War in the East. Yeah, so... Whether by design or default, and I have to be really candid, right? Our, mm -hmm. our, our, we're, we're limited by the research that we can do and yeah. by the materials that we can find. 
it, it's not entirely clear to me whether, as I say, this was this was something that was planned or otherwise. But what happens is that for a variety of different figures back east, particularly in New York City and also in Washington, D.C., the violence in Minnesota is tethered to what's happening in the ongoing civil war. Okay. So uh, newspaper editors like Horace Greeley and others suggest that this Dakota uprising, uh, by the way, the Dakota people today no longer call this an uprising. Right. They call this a war. So I want to be careful about nomenclature. Sure. But at the time, uh, observers, particularly in the East, were calling this an uprising. And those figures uh, suggest that the that the this this upsurge of violence in Minnesota is in some way uh, the fault of of Confederate uh, emissaries mm-hmm. that that representatives of of the Confederacy have been sent to Minnesota. They've drummed up anti-union sentiment among the Dakotas, who then rise up against the federal government, presenting a kind of a second front that the federal government has to defend, yeah. while it's also trying to quell the Confederate insurgency. Okay, and. That kind of links to what you talk about. I'm not sure if you mean this in Dakota in a contemporary sense or if they historically saw it as this, but you called the conflict a territorial, political, cultural counter-revolution. Did I really say that? Yeah, that's... Oh, okay. Um, I... Um... Uh, well, I mean, I think, again, what I'm trying to suggest there, uh, in addition to using grandiose language to make mm-hmm. myself sound smarter than I am, um, <laughs> is that the Dakota people conceptualize themselves as a nation. They conceptualize themselves yeah. even in that era. Certainly they do today. Mm-hmm. They conceptualize themselves as a nation that has uh, independent diplomatic goals, diplomatic goals that are different from other Indian nations that are in the same area. And that Dakota people, including one leader who's identified with uh, with this rebellion at the time, Little Crow, see mm. this as an opportunity to to push settlers out of uh, an area that had belonged to the Dakotas in, in, in the case of the uprising in 1862, as recently as a decade earlier. Uh, as I said, there there had been about a, a half centuries long process of dispossessing the Dakotas, pushing them steadily westward out of St. Paul. Your listeners aren't able to see me making a grand sweeping yeah. gesture. Mm-hmm. This is outstanding podcasting we're doing here. <laughs> um, so that process had taken place over a period of about a half a century, but in that preceding decade, it had accelerated uh, mm-hmm. and, and had moved toward this culminating point. And the Dakotas, and especially, as I say, Little Crow saw this as an opportunity to push back and to try and reclaim land that had been theirs. They understood that uh, the United States, the federal government was engaged in the Civil War, understood that as an opportunity to uh, to make a kind of a diplomatic move, um, in this case, through violence Mm -hmm. to try and take back land that they viewed as theirs. Right. Okay, that's fascinating. Um. I suppose moving on partly from that, but we might be touching on some of the same points, is the way you structured the paper is that, um, you know, it's quite narrative, but it's often non-chronological and there's multiple narratives going on here. And I think, yeah, the richness of the detail and the description, but you don't really lose sight of the analysis as we've been, the analysis that you've been describing here. Um, 
I'd like to know just more from a technically technical perspective, like how do you manage to keep these kind of narratives flowing without losing sight of your broader analytical points? And I suppose vice versa as well. Uh, that's an incredibly generous characterization of work <laughs> that I tend to think of as uh, sort of a shambling wreck and a bit chaotic. Okay. Um, I mean, I have a I, I, I did in in my book on the Sand Creek Massacre mm -hmm. put together what I called a fractured narrative. The goal in that case was to try and represent the way in which memory uh, is deeply flawed, um, that memories often come to us unbidden. And so I was trying through the construction of a narrative mm -hmm. to represent the way in which memory does or doesn't function. In this instance, what I'm trying to do is again. I'm gonna I'm gonna draw on your very generous uh, characterization. <laughs> I'm trying to create an analytical narrative. You say that the analysis doesn't get lost. I'm not entirely sure that that's true. I, okay. I suppose I'll find out later today yeah, in the seminar sure. yeah. based on what people's response is going to be. The goal for me is to try and create an account that is at once going to hold the reader's attention while at the same time driving home uh, an argument that I'm trying to make mm -hmm. about the relationship between imperialism and the United States Civil War yeah. and also about the relationship between indigenous sovereignty uh, and the expansion of the American state. Um, whether or not I'm successful, as I say, it's very, very hard for me to say this is work in progress. Yeah. Um, I'm still uh, very, very early stages of, of writing the book that this essay was drawn from. Um, and I should say the, the urban element of this is largely going to drop out in the book manuscript. Right. It's going to become what I would describe or, as a second order argument rather than a first order mm -hmm. argument. It'll be there, but it'll be relatively muted. Um, so what I've what I've shared with the seminar is uh, really being as forgiving as I possibly can to myself. It's an experiment sure. um, and I'm not sure whether or not it's going to succeed. I guess here's the place this, this seminar more broadly is like, yeah, the kind of place for that sort of experimentation. So, yeah, grateful for you trying it out. Um, I suppose talking about unconventional mediums, uh, moving on quickly to your work, Battle Lines, a graphic history of the Civil War. Um, could you talk a little bit about that project and what it taught you about, I guess, narrative history? And, yeah. Sure. Uh, so Battle Lines is a... Uh, it gets called by the the marketing people at, at Farrar, Strauss and Giroux or at Hill and Wang, mm. uh, which is a subsidiary. It gets called a graphic history. Uh, other people have called it a graphic novel. It's a comic book. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, it, it is again, I'll use your language. It's, it's an effort to create an analytical narrative history of the United States Civil War. Uh, it's a um, it's an idiosyncratic uh, work. It's episodic because it's it's very very difficult to capture the the sweep of the Civil War in in yeah. anything like uh, a reasonable number of pages, even using images as we did in the book, to to try and 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 capture particularly vivid scenes. Um, the goal with the book was to, insofar as it's possible to do this, to try and write something that was historiographically cutting edge, which is to say that was going to represent where the state of scholarship is yeah. right now in a way that uh, a, a, a middle school or a high school student or an undergraduate could read comfortably. Yeah. Um, again, I'm not clear on whether or not the book succeeded. I'm very rarely sure that my own work uh, has been successful. Um, I think I'm particularly, uh, 
I, I have I have real doubts about battle lines, but it was a lot of fun to write. In terms of what I learned from it, I really did reframe my own understanding of how to put together a narrative. Mm. I, I was working on battle lines coincidentally with uh, A Misplaced Massacre, which is the book that I wrote about the Sand Creek Massacre. Yeah. Uh, doing that kind of work coincidentally ended up being very useful for me. As I said, I, I wrote the Sand Creek book as a fractured narrative, and I was I was able to, to do that insofar as I was able to carry it off because of insights that I gained from battle lines. R writing a, a graphic history is very, very much like uh, writing a movie script or, or writing a play mm. in that um, as the author rather than the illustrator, I was responsible for providing stage direction for my co-author, Jonathan, uh, who you mentioned earlier, yeah. who then did the real work. He actually drew the thing. But I had to uh, write the, the script as a series of panels in which I would say panel one, Union soldiers enter the frame from the right, they do the following things. If there's dialogue, I would have to write what the dialogue would yeah. be. And what that experience forced me to do was was to begin thinking about my work much more cinematically and visually than I mm -hmm. ever had before, uh, including at, at a key point in the process of, of writing Battle Lines and then also writing a Misplaced Massacre, literally storyboarding the entire book. Yeah. Uh, actually looking at every single panel, breaking them up, or in the case of a misplaced massacre, every single paragraph, uh, trying to figure out a way to represent it visually in, in the case of a misplaced massacre. It was on a file card, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, and, and then moving around those file cards, thinking about the relationship uh, between one another, asking myself a question that I think is, is, is really critical for any scholar to be asking herself or himself, which is, why have I written this paragraph? Yeah. Uh, because oftentimes I have a tendency, and again, I don't think that this is necessarily unusual, I have a tendency to allow my arguments to be relatively muted in the work that I do. Mm. I, I know them in my own mind where where they where they echo rather loudly. It sounds like I'm hearing voices. I might seek treatment later today. But at any rate, I hear them quite loudly, but but my reader may not. And when I ask of a paragraph why I've written it, when I come up with an answer for that, I'll often then write that answer into the paragraph, which allows the paragraph to become, therefore, much more analytical. Mm -hmm. the, the apparatus of the argument becomes clearer. So that's, I think that was the principal lesson from putting together this kind of a graphic history. Great. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, I guess just move, to move on to a couple of general questions to close, are there any um, books or articles that you've read in the last 12 months or, you know, recently that's got you excited about the state of the field or your own work or has maybe affected how you approach your research and writing? Uh, my colleague Louis Warren has a relatively new book out called God's Red Sun, yeah. which is about the road to the Wounded Knee Massacre, uh, which is a, a, a kind of a magisterial work, which yeah. I think in many ways provides uh, a model for people who are doing um, indigenous history. Uh, I was really very, very taken uh, with that book. Mm -hmm. um, Jeannie O'Brien and, and Lisa, I think her last name is pronounced Blee, but it might be Blee, B-L-E-E, 
uh, they have a new book out called uh, Monumental Mobility, which is about uh, representations of, uh, of a particular native figure from the colonial period uh, across uh, an enormous sweep of time. Mm. It's a beautifully, beautifully constructed book. And and Jeannie's one of my favorite historians. Now Lisa uh, is as well. So I think those are the two books that have that have really captured my attention recently. Great. Well, I've read the Warren book and it's absolutely fan. Yeah, it's incredible. So I have book. to read the second one in that case. Right. And um, so what's the most interesting place you've been for research? Uh, it depends what you mean by interesting. Mm. I've spent a, a huge amount of time on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. Um, I think when people hear my description of that, they they tend to think that it might be somewhat less interesting than they were anticipating. Mm. Uh, but I, I I spent several months there. Uh, I lived in New Orleans for about three years while mm. I was doing the research for my first book. Um, all of this, I think, sounds uh, hopelessly provincial um, to a UK audience, though. So I've, I've, I've done very, very little research abroad, unfortunately. That sounds pretty interesting. I think a lot of people would yeah, love to go to those places. Yeah, just to close out, uh, the question we ask all presenters, Ari Kelman, what's your favourite album? So you warned me in advance that you were going to ask did, this yeah. question, and I, I have to tell you, I've I've very very carefully resisted giving an answer to this uh, okay. through the years. Probably uh, the closest that I can come to a favorite album uh, is uh, an album by a, a Los Angeles uh, punk rock band called X, uh, and and I I either like uh, their album Under the Big Black Sun mm -hmm. or or Los Angeles. Either of those would, would be, I think, my favorite. Uh, you know, even now, what, 35, 40 years after the fact, yeah. I'm still listening to those all the time. Brilliant. I mean, I'm a big punk fan, so that's mm -hmm. music to my ears, literally. Yeah, great. So I suppose that, that should do it. Um, Ari Kelman, thanks very much for joining me. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you great. very much. Looking forward to the seminar tonight and when the book comes out eventually. Yeah, I'm sure thanks. we'll be reading it. Thanks a lot.